Hello, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. I'm Paul Connor, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Smriti Mehta. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. Smriti. I'm doing pretty well. Um, yeah, recording bright and early on Friday as opposed to the evening. So that's a change, but it's a good change. Yeah, yeah. We're recording early today um, because we're going to have a guest for the first time ever. Woo, woo. And who's our guest going to be? So today we're going to have um, Daniel Larkins, who is a professor at the University of Eindhoven in the Netherlands. Uh, he's a very well-known blogger. He writes a blog called The 20% Statistician and just educator. So he's got some um, really popular online courses um, for people to Im improve their statistical inference skills. Um, uh, I've taken one of them called Improving Your Statistical Inference, and it was great. I learned a lot. Um, there's another one he has out called Improving Your Statistical Questions, uh, yeah. which I haven't taken yet. Which is almost but... like a first step. So if people haven't done it, oh. right, I think I would recommend doing the questions first and then the inferences later. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we talked to Daniel for quite a while, so we may as well um, just get straight to it. So yeah, without any further uh, without any further ado, here is our talk with Daniel Larkins. Daniel Larkins, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's it's very nice to be here. Can can I really say that I'm a fan after uh, five episodes? Can I say this? Is this too early? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I think I'm gonna be a fan. I'll say that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that so much. Yeah, so much. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very nice. Our very first nice. fan and yeah. our first and our, guest as well. Listener. <laughs> so no, I think uh, I think it's great. I mean, uh, it's uh, one of the. I, I just became four, uh, turned forty not too long ago, and I think uh, one of the nice things of getting old is seeing the next generation get up. And uh, yeah, I don't know if this is it. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, keep it up. <laughs> well, thanks. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate you tweeting about us. And we got a bunch of downloads after you did. So that, as a result, so was, uh, thank awesome. you. <laughs> so. Yeah, so the reason um, we wanted to have Daniel on is uh, there was a discussion earlier in the week on Twitter, uh, sort of initiated by a researcher, Josh Grubbs. So Josh was talking about an experience he was having with peer review, and he basically said he had gotten a sample, he was interested in a question, so he got a representative sample of 2,500 people from the US, and he um, chose the sample size just based on available resources, right? So he's sort of made a decision. Um, I'm interested in this question. Uh, this is the resources I have available. So this is the N I'm going to choose. So we often refer to N um, when we talk about our sample size. So um, the reviewers were saying to him, um, your sample size justification didn't make sense. Do a power analysis. Uh, so essentially asking him, I, I guess they're saying in the future, you should do an a priori power analysis, but they're also saying you need to do something, say something about power in your revision of this paper. And he was sort of, he was making a complaint that I'm actually quite sympathetic to, which is that, look, you know, I, 2,500 is a lot for what I'm studying. Um, you know, he's, he said all his p-values are very, very low in the paper, which really suggests that you have quite good power for the effect sizes that you're observing. Um, and that this is just sort of, 
at this point, it's really just window dressing. It, it's really just, it doesn't really add much to go back now and talk about power. Um, and I was sympathetic to that and I retweeted it and I said, look, you know, every, every study has good power for some effects and bad power for other effects. And to me, it's totally fine if you just get as much data as you can. But you disagree with that. And so, like, um, I think it's worth, it's, it's worth having because we, we saw on Twitter this week so many researchers were just coming out and tweeting and saying, look, yet yeah, this is how we decide on our sample sizes. We shouldn't be punishing people for being honest about that. Um, because for the most part, when people are doing power analyses, they're just kind of pretending anyway, right? Like putting mm. some numbers into G power, I can afford an N of a thousand. If the numbers mm. say I'm not powered for an effect of D equals 0.2, I'll just say, okay, well, I'm aiming for D equals 0.3 anyway. And the fact is we don't really know what the effect sizes are in the world anyway. So it's going to be fine whether you say that or that. So I, I guess like I've had similar experiences and, and we'll probably get into them where I've just been incredibly frustrated with how reviewers are dealing at the moment in our field with the question of power. Um, mm. But I know that you... I know that you have strong feelings about power. I mean, you, you got on Twitter and you were saying, yeah, like I agree with the reviewer that your justification didn't make sense. You should always do a power analysis and, and stuff like this. So hmm. yeah, I, I'm just really, yeah, I wanted to sort of talk to you about this, talk to you about how you feel. Do you, do you, to me, this we're, we've reached a frustrating point in our field with regard to the question of power where like a lot of people know a little bit about it. Hmm. And it's just made them incredibly annoying in the review process because they're just sort of <laughs> like using yeah. power as a stick to, to beat researchers yeah. over the head with, even in yeah. situations where, yeah, what they're saying maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you, 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 you raise a good point. Like, I think, I think the point that you're raising is there's a risk that power analysis is becoming just a mindless ritual. Right. And um, and we were really complaining about no hypothesis testing as a mindless um, ritual. And now uh, we figured out that our sample sizes are very often too small. I mean, that's clearly not the case with 2,500 people, or at least I assume it's not the case. Yeah, I mean, it I could don't know be, enough about right? the details. But, on... Yeah, it could still be, but let's just assume it's yeah. fine. So, so uh, and, and now... I also recognize your point with the annoyance with uh, annoyance with re reviewers who just say, "Well, you you now have to do a power analysis, right?" So I sometimes call this the the new heuristics, not the new statistics, but the new heuristics. So we we change the field, we have scientific reform, but all we do is just replace old heuristics. Uh, and in my case, when I was young, the, these heuristics were like you can collect fifteen observations in each between subject condition, and that's good enough. Mm. Right. That, that was when I was young, that was really the recommendation. And then as I aged, it seemed like this sample size is going up and up and up as people age. So you can sort of see like whatever your heuristic was, like if people told you, no, you need 30, then then you did your PhD like seven years ago. And if you if they say yeah. 50, <laughs> then you just graduated. Congratulations. You know, so it seems the number is going up, but it's just a heuristic. And now we have this new heuristic where people say you have to do a power analysis and I can completely sympathize with whenever this uh, feels like it becomes uh, sort of a mindless thing that people just say, and it doesn't add anything, that is definitely problematic. Um, I think my main point uh, uh, on Twitter when somebody says, well, I had 2,500 people, and then, so what's the issue? I think the main point is we, we design studies that should answer a question, 
and your sample size, you don't just come up with it, right? Uh, so your, your sample size needs to be in some way related to the question that you're asking. And if no other uh, reason, and we can we can debate this part because I'm not, you know, opinions can differ, but I think there is a risk that you waste resources. So 2,500 sounds like a lot, right? Let's say that, let's say we, we hear after the fact that he was doing a Stroop experiment. <laughs> And, and we know that, you know, like 20 is more than enough. Then we would feel that this would be a waste. Now, again, I'm, I don't know the details, but there's the risk of wasting things. And if you don't relate what you do, you just say, I collect as much as I can collect. That can also be wasteful. Then why didn't you do three different studies? We would have learned more from it. So that is a real risk, right? I, I just, like, do you have good examples of where people have been wasteful in this way and gotten way too much data uh, where you can definitely say, no, you should have known a priori that the effect was in this specific range. Hmm. Uh, so you should not have collected that much, that much data. Because to me, it's like, okay, well, you know, so say, say hmm. the, the real effect that Josh is after is X. And, hmm. he, you know, he, well, he probably was overpowered if we look at his p-values, but... Like a priority. This, this word overpowered is also a bit like overpowered. Yeah. Right, right, right. Let's right. say, you know, he, he, he was wasteful. Maybe right, he was like wasteful. maybe, but yeah. before he ran it, he didn't know what mm. the effect size was going to be. So like if we're going to look at 2,500 and say, well, you were overpowered, I, I yeah. think he would be justified saying, well, how, like before I ran it, how is that a valid mm. criticism when we didn't know what this effect size was yeah. going to be? Well, and how, how do we even know he wanted to have power for anything, right? I right. mean, it's not even required to do a power analysis. <laughs> uh, I mean, we typically call, call it a sample size justification, mm. right? And, and a sample size justification could be like with 2,500 people, I'm going to be really, really sure about whatever I'm measuring, I'm going to be so super accurate. And we need this. We need accurate. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, it, it doesn't even matter what the specific case was. In general, people can have a justification where they say, look, I just want to be very accurate about something. And I, um, I got an email uh, with somebody who criticized me. I know, know this person very well. It was very nice. It's like, Daniel, I have to send you an email. I'm not on Twitter. Well, you know, the, the lurkers on Twitter. The people, <laughs> the, people, the people who are too afraid to go on Twitter because they will say something silly, which, you know, I mean, it ties back to earlier episodes. But I mean, these people <laughs> exist, I think. Uh, but um, so he's like, yeah, I don't have a Twitter account. I would say something stupid. And, uh, but uh, uh, he emailed me and said, you know, we don't appreciate precision, but sometimes we really want precise estimates of something. And in this case, this person actually had studied recently uh, the, the speed with which people read words. So the average number of words that people can read. And he's like, it's super useful to have a really good estimate, not just about the average in the population, but if you have, let's say, thousands of people, you have very good estimates for elderly, you have very good estimates for people who, uh, you know, have a trouble with uh, education, whatever. I mean, you can have very good estimates. And that's great because then Netflix can just ask you next time if you watch a movie, like, well, where are you at? Well, okay. You, then we know you have to slow down a little bit. We're going to show you this or that. So sometimes having good estimates is a great justification. And then it's done, right? And then you can just reply to the reviewer, say, dear reviewer, screw your, screw your power analysis. <laughs> I don't want it. I have very accurate estimates and I need those estimates for something, you know, but still there is a justification. You're not just going to say, well, I just happen to be, you know, I ha have a lot of grant money and I just, you know, and the grant is almost over. So I just threw it all into this one data collection. I mean, could even be a justification, could even be, but 
preferably we want people want people to use those resources more efficiently and i think this is the main thing so when you say when is there a case where we want people to say no you know you collected too much data well you know we're figuring out treatments for covid right now mm. uh, i would prefer that we don't say no no i said 2500 we're gonna go to 2500 if after a thousand people we know like okay this is it we can stop we can go right we don't have to wait i mean uh, let's say that you have a design where you do sort of survival analysis and people are literally dying right i mean that's your data how many people are going to die so this happens right in research there's just researchers who are waiting for enough people to die so they get their data points no this is i think a perfect case where you say 2500 well you know if you can draw a conclusion after 1200 that would be super because then we're going to give whatever treatment that you examined and works we're going to give it to these other people as well Okay. It doesn't require an a priori power analysis, by the way, right? We can have other sorts of sample size justification, but you can be wasteful and it can have consequences. Well, I guess I agree. But then, so say P is 0.04 after 1,200 people and people are dying. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I think, I think uh, you know, you probably don't want to set your p-value at uh, 5% if you're doing yeah. a COVID trial, but yeah. Yeah. I Well... With all due respect to Josh Grubbs, I, I doubt very much that many people's lives are hinging on his yeah, research. Okay. I mean, he... That's a good he, point. Does, he, so, 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 so it's easy, porn. of course. I mean, I'm giving you so life-saving life treatments, and you're basically saying, but this is psychology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We are not in the business of saving lives. But I, I Although, guess, like, I mean, you know. I, in principle, yes, like, wastefulness is a potential concern. Hmm. I just, like, it... It doesn't like it doesn't really bother me that much uh, to think <laughs> well, of like what you. a psychology. <laughs> well, just because like okay, like you, if we have a psychology experiment, Josh Grubbs, he got twenty five hundred and he only needed hmm. twelve hundred. Um, yeah, that or, or to me it's like well, okay, he didn't really know what the effect size was when he started hmm. the study. Maybe he hasn't learned um, what's the thing you call it, whether you can stop it a third of. The way, <laughs> yeah. So the, that's a good alternative. We we might get into a bit more, but sequential analysis. Sequential so analysis. Just, yeah, yeah. You just um, say I'm willing to go to 2500, but yeah. if I have a nice answer in between and I control my error rate, and then I can stop whenever I need to stop, and the data is convincing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a good alternative. Yeah. To some questions you have. Yeah. But I guess also, like <laughs> uh, like I said I before, like to, is like looking at like oh, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I've heard of sequential analyses. I, I don't, but I thought like the general recommendation was not to do that, where you look at some of the data and figure out like, right, just where you just then collect more. And I thought that was not exactly. recommended. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, so this is a good example of um, uh, sort of the new heuristics, right? Mm -hmm. So now you've learned that, oh, you're not supposed to do this because it inflates your error rates, right. which is totally true. Right. If you don't correct your alpha level, this will inflate your error rates mm. and it's problematic. But you have al already learned a way to control error rates, right? Somewhere. People said, hey, if you're going to look at your data multiple times, there's this thing with this nice fancy word. Do you know what we call it? Like if you, do you know the term for this? Adjustment for multiple Adju comparisons. Comparisons, yeah. Like something yes, like a Bonferroni, right? I mean, that would exactly. be very, yeah. Exactly. The Bonferroni yeah. correction. Right. You, you want to look at your data five times? Use the Bonferroni correction. You're fine. You can right. do it. You can look at your data. So there's optional stopping, which mm. is, you know, continuing on without correction. But you already know a correction. Mm. And the only thing that the sequential analysis literature does is be, be a bit more efficient about how you do this, give you way more flexibility and other cool tricks. So this is a huge literature, which again comes from medicine where, yeah, they really care about people dying um, and saving lives if they can stop earlier. But 
there is a valid point to say, but we do psychology and who knows what we're interested in anyway, right? Maybe maybe we should just collect some data and call right. it a day. I mean, And then I have possible. a follow-up follow question. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk. So we should, you know, your power analysis should be based on what effect sizes you might anticipate in, in reality. Mm. Like, um, But how does one go about doing that when like a lot of the effect sizes that we have in the literature might not be the true effects, yeah. right? Like it's hard to... Like, how does one go about doing that, figuring out yeah, what yeah. the effect size might be? So I think that's the real question, right? Yeah. That gets to the issue, like, are we just playing a game that that this is more meaningful than just coming up with random numbers? And the, the coming up with the random numbers happens a lot. There's this uh, a paper by people where they call this the sample size samba, um, which basically means you just plug in a number in your power analysis, uh, like an effect size. You're like, oh, maybe it's this. Then you get a sample size that's super large. And then you walk back and forth between these numbers and the outcome until you end up somewhere where you're like, well, this is exactly the sample size I was wanting, I was want, I wanted to collect anyway, right? So, right? so we don't want this behavior. Yeah. So you need to input something that makes sense. So what are your options? Well, your options are either you, you, you really know something from the literature, and you say, well, this should be very close to what I'm studying as well, which is rare because the whole point of doing a study is very often to, to know what the effect size is, right? But okay, let's say you're just generalizing. You say, we already we have an established effect. We know that if we have this intervention, children will learn much better in high school. Let's see if they also, if we do this intervention in uh, elementary school, they also learn better. Okay, right? So you have an effect size estimate from somewhere which might generalize. You're not never certain, but it might. So you have some data from the literature that might be a bit reliable. That's a lovely case, but very often that doesn't happen. Yeah. The alternative, so people always think that the power analysis is supposed to be about plugging in the thing that you expect, which which you can do, but you know that's rare. The other thing that's much more widely recommended actually in the literature is plugging in the thing you want to detect, right? So you plug in the smallest effect size that you think matters. And then if you don't find this smallest thing that you care about, well, it doesn't really matter what the true effect size is, which is always unknown, but you are very sure that it's not big enough for you, for whatever reason, to care about it. So now it sounds like we solved the issue, except what we just did is we just moved the sample size justification to a smallest effect size that you're interested in justification. So we didn't solve it yet because we still have something to justify. But at least if we can justify this new thing, really justify it, then we have prevented the sample okay. size some by okay. the, the mindless ritual, right? So this is the crux, but I think. Before we talk about that, though, okay, say a researcher uh, is following, you know, the, the Lacanzian school of uh, sample size justification. So they work out what the smallest effect size of interest to them is, and we'll mm. get into like how wrong they might be about that. But, um, mm. okay. But then they realize, all right, I don't have enough resources to power mm. my study for the sesoi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that sesoi. how we say it? Yeah. Like, well, that's, that, that's also my only contribution. <laughs> this is all like, I, I don't do anything. I just read literature sometimes in other fields, like in medicine, and then I explain it to psychologists, but I did take a long shower one day and thought of a nice acronym <laughs> and the sesoi that's yeah, like that's, that's my contribution says, okay. my only contribution here yeah <laughs> i think the sesoi is d equals 0.1 but i only have enough yeah. resources f uh, to power my study for d equals 0.3 yeah yeah now yeah, yeah should they run the study or not because the fact is maybe mm -hmm. d is 0.3 
and if, yep. even if D is 0.1, they still could detect it. And if if they get a null result in this study where yep. they're powered for D equals 0.3, they yep. can falsify D equals 0.3. Uh, yep. They cannot falsify D equals 0.1. So they may not give up no. on the field of research, but they've right. they've done something. They've contributed something. Their power, their study was well powered for some range of effects and it can falsify some range of effects. So... Yeah, yeah, they didn't follow best practice and we can all, you know, pile on them as reviewers and say, ha ha, you didn't do what no, Daniel no, Larkin no. said. But to me, it's still like, no, no. it's I fine. Mean, the, the question is also, okay, so, so I think, let's say that whatever the effect sizes that you want to detect is really tiny. Mm. And there are many cases where this, this is defensible, right? Mm. I mean, if you're going to uh, roll out an educational intervention over uh, a million uh, children in the U.S., yeah. Who cares how small it is? Like if it matters, if it improves things and, and the cost is small, right? That's that's the whole argument for some interventions. Like, you know, the cost is super small. The effect is larger than zero. So just do it, you know? Uh, I think a similar case is like uh, taking an aspirin every now and then, which apparently has a tiny, tiny, tiny improvement in sort of risk of heart rate. But yeah, an aspirin, it doesn't cost anything. So why not, right? So there are a couple of things you can do that... Um, that where very small effects would matter. So if we have a, a thing like this, I mean, what is the solution? Well, it depends, right? So so one, one reasonable thing to say is we don't have the resources right now, but I'm going to generate the resources to collect this data. And this is what psychology has been doing with this psychological science accelerator, for example. They realize that there are things that there are not enough people to, to you know, collect by yourself. Furthermore, you don't get a diverse enough sample. If you collect this just in one place. That's also not what you want. So if you really want to know something, you want to have a lot of data from all over the place. So so they solved this issue, more or less. And I think they have so many labs. I think we can we can do the math, but I think they would get pretty close to detect a Cohen's D of 0.1, which is a tiny, tiny effect, which you won't notice, but you know, who knows? It might have some real life consequence. So they could do it, which is, uh, I mean, their name, Psychological Science Accelerator, is not for nothing, right? I mean, CERN has the same challenge. It's like, let's, let's detect this Higgs boson. Well, you can, you can buy a pack of batteries and, you know, go to your shed and try, but you're not going to manage, you know, you need to build this, I don't know, 15 billion uh, detector. Yeah. So they also have resource limitations and they're like, okay, let's just write a paper with 5,000 people because we really want to know this one thing. Now, the problem would be if psychology has like thousands of tiny effects that we want to know. There are not enough people in the world to, to figure all that stuff out. We can't let everybody do a study every day of the rest of their lives. I mean, it's not possible. So, yeah, so that's not going to be, there are limitations somewhere. Okay. Oh yeah, fascinating. Like I, I want to get to like Sesoy, but this is a, like an interesting question might be getting a little philosophical, but I mean, hmm. the way the field seems set up right now, it does seem like people want individuals to run their own studies every single day yeah. of the year, right? Like that kind of feels yeah. like it. Mm. Um, I like I'm mm. I'm not sure. Like I I totally agree that we should be thinking more as a field. Like what are the really important questions that we want to ask, mm. and then collaborate mm. more extensively with others to answer those questions. Yeah. But it's not how it's set up. Like, it's not, I mean, so for you, for up, your yeah. PhD, what's what's your plan? What's your PhD plan? Like, what's it going to look like when you graduate? When you get uh, your PhD, what do you need to do study wise? Um, in terms of you mean like just what is the program itself? Uh, research wise, like what kind of studies would you collect? When when is it good enough to get your PhD? What how much data do you need? Data to do you need? How many study? 
Yeah. I am not even sure if there's any guidelines around it. I haven't, like, I've spoken to individual professors about it, but it doesn't seem like there's any consistent guidelines on what mm. that would be. I think it's like mm. maybe like three or four papers worth of studies. Yeah, but we about. run, I mean, a yeah, grad student at Berkeley right. will run a lot yeah. of studies in their PhD. Like, yeah. but, but something like, you know, three papers would be nice, three empirical chapters. I think that's at least the same in the Netherlands yeah. as well, and it might differ. But okay, so that's your limitation, right? I mean, you have right. a couple of years, yeah. you have a, you have some resources. So we have set up the system now that you have to do this. You have you don't have a choice. Well, you have a choice not to get your PhD, but <laughs> basically we're requiring you to work within resource limitations where you're supposed to do three, you know, get three papers. And well, with the limitations time-wise and money-wise that you have. So what are you going to do in this time? Well, you might be super lucky and work in a group that has access to uh, 100,000 schools and you can press a button and everybody will, you know, but that's very often not the case. Yeah. So yeah, you can just compute what you can sort of detect. And so I think you're right. Like, you know, if you would ignore the system as it is and you design a system how it's supposed to work, wouldn't it make sense that you would work in like a 20-person team? and collect data collectively and you know everybody has their part or their role to play but and then we get shit done right we really get some answers and uh, yeah no i agree yeah. well, so it's peculiar so so a lot of the frustration i'm gonna just say it you know i think a lot of the frustration that we see about power analysis is people being confronted with the fact like well holy shit but this is not gonna work in my phd this is not what i need <laughs> i mean this is not getting me my diploma so so they feel pressured to do something that is impossible given the system they're in. And that's why people resist, yeah, these issues well, more or less, I think. I mean, I think you can, you could probably get a PhD if that was what you were focusing on. I'm not sure you could get a job there. No, maybe. I mean, but it's a choice, right? It's a choice what if we you want to do. And, focusing yeah. on what? Like if you were just author 400, 500 on, a, on, I don't know, four or five publications at the end of your PhD. Get, not to get a job in academia, you mean? Because yeah. if you're doing that, you're still building skills that might be, you know, you will still might get a... Yeah, potentially. Know. But industry doesn't care about your publications. True. Anyway, is my understanding. Well, I mean, what you just said, I think, is more important. Like, you build the skills, right? I think we need to reconsider what's the goal of a PhD? Like, is it like being a data collection factory or is it learning skills? I would say... It was all about learning the skills. And yes, you demonstrate those skills maybe by writing a paper. But anyway, we have we have weird requirements and that doesn't make it easy for people to work within the system. So, um, I mean, I just wrote a blog post about this feasibility part, like given that you are you have these huge feasibility and that does tie back to the question that Paul asked before, like, OK, so should you just collect this data anyway, even though you're not going to detect a super small effect and these super small effects are still useful? Um, yes, you should probably collect this data, but the way that we solve it in the field now, which more or less works, is a meta-analysis, right? We hope that many people want to study the same thing in sort of similar ways. We don't coordinate it at all, by the way, right? We don't get together with the, whatever, Society for Educational Science and say, you know, we're all going to collect these four measures, because that's going to be very useful seven years from now for, no, we just all create our own measures and we do stuff and we have different whatever designs. But in the end, we throw them all together anyway in a meta-analysis and that's the way that we learn now. So as long as you have some guarantee that, you know, enough people want to study, I don't know, something something crazy that you're interested in 
as long as there are enough, there will be this future meta-analysis. And that's now how we solve it, right? Except for these multi-lab things. Like, if you read one of these multi-lab papers where they collect, uh, I don't know, 2,000 observations, and they say, okay, the effect size is a Cohen's D of 0.008, and uh, it's tiny. Those feel convincing, right? Or am I the only one who thinks that these big papers sometimes... No, they're, they're great. And, and like, I, I totally agree that, like, science should be more collaborative we should have fewer papers we should have much larger samples and coming to like i i totally agree with that like for me though like i i've never really wanted to take part in psych science accelerator because i know that like if i do i'm gonna have very little say over hmm. like what yeah. the direction of the of the project because it's you know oh, that's 20 people mostly more senior to me um and all well, I'm bringing is, you know, like it, it depends, by the way. The I mean, it's a very diverse group, but mm. no, but that's also totally fine. Like in physics, not everybody works at CERN. You know, there are people who are like, they love plasma physics and that basically requires, well, my understanding is limited, but it requires like a high speed camera in your office and some droplets that fall down or whatever, you know, and you can do it by yourself. And, and I think psychology should also work like this. I'm not saying everybody should join psychological science accelerator. I'm just saying if we have things we really want to know, yeah, then we, you know, need to get serious about answering them. And and I think we have too many examples where we don't do this seriously, where we just keep either hoping that we get a meta-analysis, which publication bias makes super difficult and stuff, right? I mean, in medicine, what they would do is do a prospective meta-analysis. So they get 17 hospitals on boards. They say, okay, we're all going to do this for the next two years. And then after two years, we figured it out. We know it, you know, it's done. After two years, we're done because these 17 hospitals are pulling their data together. There's no bias. We should do those kind of things as well. So, I mean, why not? If we want real answers about something, right? I guess, but, like, I feel like if your study can be put in a meta-analysis, hmm. you must have designed a really boring, unoriginal study because we, <laughs> there's just, like, so an effect size is variance explained, right? And, yeah, so, yeah. like, so many things... So many decisions that you make as a researcher affect variance explained that I just, yeah. I don't, yeah. I, like, but you're, 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 you're talking like a true social cognition researcher, <laughs> which is fine, which is true. You know, it's my background as well, but I could imagine like in educational psychology that this would already be a bit different because we have, you know, you have more standardized tests. You want to know more similar things. You, people should, you know, pass an exam somewhere or get better scores on the GRE or however you have the system in the US. I mean, you know, yeah. so, so you have a sh more shared goal. And in, I agree in, in social cognition research, people want to have, you know, everybody has their own toothbrush, their own theory, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to use the, the toothbrush of someone else or the theory of someone else. Everybody's developing their own little theories and testing them, which could lead to something, you know, it's great, but it's a different, different way of working, I think. Yeah, I'm and, sorry. And I mean, it's fine. Psychology, like, I'm like, are we even again? Like, yeah, it's great that we should all be like important questions. Like, we should all be focusing on a few questions that are really important. But again, like with something like social cognition, right? How do you get people together to ask those questions collectively? A and mm. B again because of like the how individual I think psychological mm. science is, like the individual nature of it. More people like focus on again, you know, getting publications that will get them jobs as opposed to answering the big questions that that's oh, okay. at least my impression 
No, it, it, it's interesting. Like the way you talk about it, I think it is interesting. Like you, you describe the current situation very well. That's no disagreement there. But you talk like the, the individual nature of psychological science. Like, wait, when did this get a nature? Like, what is this? We are it. You know? right. We do True. this. Yeah. I mean, and, and you can say, well, the individual nature of uh, international politics. You know, we have international issues and sometimes we have an international issue like we have refugees and we need to decide if we take them in and where they go and then we get together and figure it out. And sometimes my local municipality thinks, you know what, we're going to put some grass here instead of the rocks that are there, you know, and they don't need to have international politics involved. So we have right. some things you can do by yourself, some things you, you need to do together, I think. Right. What, by individual nature, I think what I mean is that people are more often motivated by individual goals as opposed to collective goals mm. of we need to move the field forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think that's, that's true that's, for politicians too, right? A lot of them are probably in it just for the power, for their own, as yeah. opposed to, it's oh, I want to make for, the for world. Yeah. yeah, for people. No, yeah. you're right. I yeah. mean, I think, I think there you can say, okay, yes. yeah, like human beings yes. are typically uh, a bit egoistic yeah. in many cases. But, but, but it's kind of weird that scientists, I, I'm not completely convinced all scientists need to be like this. So a while ago, like when coronavirus just sort of hit, I had this... Uh, uh, and I was sitting in my office by myself, I, I tweeted something like, okay, do you think that your science, the science that you do is completely worthless? Um, because then I would just like to talk to you. Like, I'm interested in why would you say that you think your science is completely worthless? And this was one of the topics that came up in many of these talks. People are like, yeah, I thought I was going to enter this sort of system where everybody works together to figure stuff out. And that's not it. Like, yeah. I'm just going to do this tiny thing for four years and nobody's going to build on this in the future. And I don't have an answer because I don't have the resources to really answer it. So I'm just writing this thing and then it will be, you know, put in a shelf as a PhD thesis. There will be two papers, you know, it will get like 37 citations and that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's possible to work like that, but... I don't know. And then we have situations like video game and aggression, you know, which is a literature that we've been debating for 20 years. I don't know, maybe it's time for some of these things, which we clearly are interested in, to switch to this prospective meta-analytic approach. We just say, okay, yeah, we do get together. This is apparently an international conflict. We need to get everybody on board, have a very long meeting, seven days, and we just decide how we're going to move forward for the next two years. Because otherwise, nobody's going to bother with this. Uh, so, you know, for some of these topics, I, I do think it should be possible. And it, maybe it goes against our nature. That's fine, but aren't we psychologists? Like, aren't we supposed to <laughs> know how this stuff out. works? And then, I don't know, have a quick priming manipulation to make everybody much more pro-social than they were before? <laughs> I mean, I guess we could in theory, but I, and I, I felt the same way, like when you're talking about, oh, you know, is my, the research I'm doing completely pointless and worthless? And I have felt like that, like in my first year, but I mean, Paul doesn't even believe that social psychology is a science and there's a lot of social <laughs> psychologists that i've heard just saying that oh what we do really doesn't make a difference it doesn't most of it isn't mm. even true and yeah just yeah. a lot of existential yeah, I, think, I mean but i thought i thought last like your last episode was really nice like and i think because it's about this topic where you sound like yeah you do care about this stuff and i think it's great yeah and you can make a difference i don't i don't agree at all that the stuff we do i mean maybe some things maybe the stuff paul does you know? <laughs> yeah <that's> like <laughs> we can just erase it and nothing happens i mean no. I, i'm totally this on board is, with that <laughs> Hang I mean, on. Uh, this, Hang on. he wouldn't be the first. By the way. I mean, one of the one of the nice things that I once heard somebody say after the Diederik Stapel fraud case.
case, which I mean, it was in the Netherlands, right? So, uh, um, and and somebody after this said, yeah, the fraud is really bad. You know what's also really bad? Getting like fifty-four papers retracted, mm. and nothing in science changes. Yeah, it has no consequence. You know, we stro- we struck them from the scientific record, and it doesn't matter at all. I mean, that is also worrisome. So maybe you know that's a case sometimes, but there are issues again, like video game or aggression or or now COVID. We you know yeah. we can joke about people doing COVID research <clears throat> kind of opportunistically, but like in our country, the rates are going back up. They were very low because everybody is starting to ignore the risks okay. and getting together and breaking the you know distancing rules. So, I mean, social psychologists can have a good contribution there. I really hope so, Daniel. (laughs) So everybody thinks we can, right? And everybody hopes that their research will have an impact, even Mm. me, if you really keep questioning me. But it's it's, at the same time, people really struggle if you say, well, okay, give me clear examples of positive impacts that social psychology has had uh, on society. Social psychology? I mean, like. I mean, loneliness, for example, is a great topic. Like in my in my city, we have a program where people visit elderly because we know that loneliness is like, you know, it's horrible. I mean, it's a very negative effect. So and social psychologists figured it out. OK, it's not like a super exciting breakthrough, maybe. But, you know, the severity of the issue, you could have said, oh, no, people like to be being by themselves. But it turns out, no, people like, you know, other people. OK, then maybe this the first thing that came to mind. Maybe we can come up with this question, by the way. I mean, this question comes up on Twitter every now and then. And there's similar people saying similar things. And I, I should look up what I <laughs> what I wrote as an answer in the past. Yeah. But I mean, there is stuff that we do, like psychology as a whole field, social psychology as well. But but it's true that if we think it's difficult to answer this question, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Because there are real issues, you know, I mean, uh, I know that like in the 60s, there were these very cognitive psychologists who, uh, Osgood, one of his, uh, Charles Osgood, and he, he, he did a lot of work on meaning and polar oppositions. Uh, I used to do this for my PhD thesis, more or less. And then all of a sudden he switched and he worked for the US government during the Cold War era mm-hmm. to figure out, hey, look, the Cold War is basically a polar opposition that we have. And I'm, I'm giving advice. You know, he switched and he solved the real life problem. Yeah. And you see this when there's war, you know, when there's wartime, people get together and they fix issues. Wait, so wait, we need- he solved the Cold War? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. What, what are you but, talking he didn't. about? But he stopped. No, like, he stopped his studies on undergraduates, and he's like, "Okay, hey, let's let's solve I, a I real world problem." Joined, joined like a think tank or something. But you know, uh, conceptually, you know, it's uh, it makes sense, right? That you if you view things as polar opposites, uh, it, it doesn't help the discussion. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what he did, but he switched to like solve a real meaningful problem, and I think that's the issue. Like, if we identify these things that we think are real meaningful issues. The problem is not that we don't have the tools to save them. The problem is, yeah, we work by ourselves and we do our single study. We write our PhD thesis. Yeah. We can, we could do a bit more if we work together. Yeah, I, I mean, really think so. The pandemic situation was, I think, such a good opportunity for social psychologists to step up because one of the biggest things mm-hmm. we needed people to do was social distancing. And like, mm-hmm. if we can't answer, but I haven't seen any work um, that really I seemed mean, compelling from a social psychological perspective. I think people are trying to do certain things, but um, what it requires is to have an organization where there is this huge collaboration mm-hmm. and uh, systematically where we do this. And I mean, if Paul says, I mean, and that's totally fair. If Paul says, you know, I don't want to work with, in this great team where I don't have any say in what to do. That's great. But, you know, in a company, it's not like, hey, I'm not in the director's room. 
Why why do I have to why are you telling me to 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 make this part of the self-driving car? Why do I have to do this thing? Why didn't I have a say in it? Because we are making a self-driving car and this is what other people have decided that needs to be done and you have to do it. Hey, you know? But no, no, in psychology everybody has to, you know, have their own unique brainchild that they can take care of for the rest of well, their life. Yeah, but that's I mean, part of the allure of the field. I mean, if the psych science accelerator wants to match Google's pay rates, then I'd be more than happy to do it. <laughs> It is no, you you are right. I, I agree there. I agree there. I mean, one of the one of the perks of being an academic is yeah, you can create your own problems and work on them for your entire life. Yeah, it's true. But then you don't get the you know the great impact on society that we could have if we didn't do it. You know, it's one or the other. I think. Or let's say you know, I'm also fine. I don't want to talk in extremes, but let's say we work one day a week, really one day a week on all on collective issues. Mm -hmm. That would already be nice, you know. And then the video game literature aggression stuff isn't solved in a year it could be solved in a year mm. then it's solved in three years fine you know i'm still fine with that yeah i mean but we're already we spending a day game. a week trying to do daniel larkin's latest course so we can use best practices and all our no. research so because you don't need I, to do this because well, in this big collaboration i will just be there yeah, you don't yeah. need to do my course that's a good you can point just ask me that's and a good I will point. Do and you know? I think no. you were talking about that on Everything Hurts recently on the uh, 100th mm. episode where it, it's just like, it, it's actually very hard to get good at this stuff. It, it takes a long time. And, yeah. and this is one thing I wanted to bring up with related to power analysis, right? So mm. my yeah. early studies in my PhD, um, I didn't do power analyses for, I was just sending RAs out into Berkeley to just mm -hmm. get as much that data as possible. Me. And I got really big samples. Um, What's big? What are we oh, 1,600 and then 1,300. Okay. Uh, so the, but the awesome. effect of interest was a cross-level interaction in a multi-level yeah. model between yeah. you know, a group-level variable and an individual variable. And I had no idea. At that, I'm not even sure the tools existed at that point in my PhD to mm. um, do a power analysis in this kind of situation. And I remember even yeah. asking a statistics expert, this guy Doc Edge, who has this mm. uh, really cool, good book uh forget the name of it um, mm. um statistics from scratch or something i think it's called um and he really struggled to do a power analysis in this multi-level model situation so like it's really really hard and yeah. i've invested a lot of time now and uh, like gotten pretty good at like simulating data and stuff like that but when you yeah. have when you move away from the sort of t-tests and correlations that like your Amazing. course will will prepare you for Power analysis gets really, really difficult and it's enormously time consuming. And this is one thing I sort of wanted to, to no, bring up because no. like if we're concerned about wastefulness, mm -hmm. you know, um, getting Josh Grubbs to go back now and spend two days simulating data so he can like add some power estimate to this study that he's already yeah. done yeah. feels pretty wasteful to me. I agree. I agree. No, I completely agree. So if there are these, so there are two things two things to this. The one is we just have huge uncertainty and there are a lot of stuff like in a, a multi-level model, you might have to specify like a correlation matrix between things and there, you know, and, and if you mess up half of these correlations, yeah, your power analysis is way off anyway. So, so then it becomes just, uh, uh, you know, uncertainty build on uncertainty, build on uncertainty, and then why bother, right? So I think, I, I mean, it's easy to say why bother. I'm not completely sure how hard we tried, but okay, there's definitely some some truth to this so if we want to prevent there there are two things one is should we even try to do the power analysis and if so what should we do to get there so let's do that first if you want to do this 
What you want is to have stable measures that you know your measure. You know, you know what you're measuring. You also know a little bit how some things correlate with each other. So we, we have a field where we ignore descriptive research. If I ask you, what's the standard deviation of your measure? You don't even know by heart, right? You probably don't even know what the standard deviation of your measure is. Where if you want to do a power analysis and you have some difference you care about, you still need a good estimate of your standard deviation to calculate a standardized effect size to put in the power analysis. But we don't care about standardized uh, or standard deviation. We don't know the variance of our measures. It's there, we report it, but we don't think about it. But if we're serious about doing this, then we have a field where, you know, for the next three years we say, let's do descriptive research. Only descriptive research. We throw all the measures we use a lot. We throw them all out there. We collect a huge amount of data. And now we have good measures of things and we know how things correlate more or less. So we're not completely in the dark. And we don't have no uncertainty, but we've reduced it. You know, that would be possible. There's another solution. If you have like 1,300 people, and that is doing sequential analysis. You use the first part of your data to look at some of your measures, and it's called conditional power analysis in the sequential analysis literature. So you collect the first ben, uh, batch of points, then, because you're allowed to you know, collect more data anyway, that's the whole setup, you do a conditional power analysis. You look at, okay, where am I? What are my effects? You use, maybe a bit conservatively, some of the effects in your uh, observed sample, and then you do a power analysis and you determine how uh, many other points you want to collect. Ooh. So that, that is possible, right? It exists. Now that is reducing the uncertainty. The other thing is, if you don't care about the hypothesis test, don't care, don't do a power analysis, right? And we are obsessed with, with doing hypothesis tests, but if you have 2,500 people, everything is going to be significant anyway, right? That doesn't excuse you from thinking about which effect sizes matter, because, you know, everything is significant. It just makes it even more important to think about what actually matters. But if you, if you just want to have accurate estimates of stuff, then so, do this. Don't do a hypothesis test. Right? So people that's say this solution. all the time. Like, 2,500 mm. people, everything's going to be significant. Like, uh, maybe not. No, I don't know. So, I mean, I mean smaller it really depends on the question. Smaller effects will be significant. Uh, but under the null, alpha is still 0.05, right? So... Uh, no, yeah, of course. I mean, so it depends on what the study setup is, if the null is very plausible or not, you know? I mean, if this was a correlational study with mm -hmm. 2,500 people, then then you start to get in the range that just because you're a little bit taller than I am and somebody asks you every now and then, hey, do you want to reach to the top shelf and get this product for me? And I ask you, how altruistic do you think you are? You say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit more... You know, you get all these tiny interactions be because of whatever that lead to real effects. So with 2,500 people, people you can do it you can look at correlations but yeah many of them will be significant i think the, the, this this stuff has been done like 95 percent of things become significant or something i mean huge amounts in most data sets so that that is true it depends of course if it was the study where he had a three by three design uh, and everything was between subjects and he wanted to have some very specific interaction maybe it's not even enough yeah that's true yeah uh, so we don't know but but anyway yeah but the, the more important thing is Either reduce uncertainty by knowing stuff already before you do the hypothesis test, or don't do the hypothesis test. Both of these are fine solutions. But what? Yeah, I guess I'm trying to figure out what I disagree with you on. Because like, <laughs> when you, when you talk, I don't I don't disagree with much, but I, I still feel like there is a disagreement there. So like, so I'm in grad school. I have like this complex study I want to run, um, mm. don't have the expertise yet to do a power mm. analysis. And then I go out, you know, get my RAs to get a bunch of data. 
And then I look at that data and then I pre-register mm. and I try to replicate and I get a new study, but it, it's difficult to do a power analysis in the new study because I've changed the methods in such a way that the manipulation has become much stronger. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I just like, I just think that this is like, it's okay. Like get it, getting as much data as you can and learning from that data and taking mm. what lessons you can from that data is more or less what you're talking about. Um, and yeah, like I just, I think I, it's fine to work like this at certain phases, but you have to realize what you do. Like, so, and, and it yeah, really, it depends on what your goal is as well, but we very often mix up goals. So your way of working, like what you just described, perfectly fine. I would still say, you know, you can test things. You can sort of, expl you know, you can even pre-register something. But I, when I talk about power analysis, I do this from a very formal methodology, you know, like a, a philosophy of statistics that says, if you can predict something, that is how you impress other people about your theory. And, and, that, that, and then we do a test and, and my test is high powered. So if I'm, tr if I'm correct, it should happen. You know, that's the whole goal. So I design an experiment that is likely to give you the uh, confirmation for the prediction that I make, if my prediction is true or if my theory is true. And then it, it works and then you're impressed by what I've done. It's sort of like, you know, I want to show you that I'm a good dart player. I stand in front of a dartboard. I say, where do you want it to go, this dart arrow? You know, where, where should it go? And you say, okay, the bulls, I'm not sure. And I throw it and boom, it goes in. And then you're like, that's lucky. I do it again. And then you're impressed, right? You're impressed and you believe that I'm a good dart player. So if you want to have this kind of knowledge, like this theory has something going for it. That's the, <laughs> the formal approach where we, we do these tests. What you describe is more like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, anything could happen here, <laughs> but I can collect 1,300 people and then I'll go through it. And also, I will yeah, follow then... up on it, you know? So I'm still guessing a little bit in the future, but let, let, just to end this, a good test, a good test of a prediction, how much would you bet on this pre-registered thing? If you're like, well, not my house, you know, not my guitar that's hanging on my wall. Like, <laughs> if you, okay, the guitar is good. Would you bet your guitar that something's going to happen? Like, that's oh, not too expensive. Should, but... Like, so if you don't if bet you, this, then then maybe don't test. But Daniel, you know, don't no, test. But if you if you would bet your house on a prediction, that study's probably not worth doing. True. But no, like, don't we, we do like we do studies where we're not sure how I things agree. are going to turn out because we're interested in how things are going to turn out. Like I'm not betting. In a I phase, mean, in a phase in the research, we we don't know what's happening. But in the end, so that's the thing. Like we we never do this house betting study. But in medicine, they do it. It's called a phase three trial. <laughs> you know, yeah, they already yeah. did the phase right. one. So we it's don't perfect, use this yeah. terminology, but maybe we should. So maybe you are talking like phase two, mm. you know, you're in phase two. And mm. then they're like, no, no, we think we have it. But before we're going to give everybody this, and that is why we don't do applied research, because mm. we don't do the phase three thing where we're like, no, no, I'm going to bet my house that this is working. You know, we don't do that stuff. But mm. so I think you're wrong. We should do this stuff. Not you, not for your PhD. We should mm. do it together. Mm. But I think we do need it. Yeah. And then it is boring. Yeah, it is boring, but that's nice because then you can build more risky stuff on it in the future. No, yeah, like, I, I, I like that. Like, and in some ways, like, yeah, every JPSP should have had a study six that was a pre-registered hmm. direct replication the, where we're betting yeah, our house. Maybe that's the only like, study that needs the power analysis, to be honest. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm perfectly fine with only having study six do the whole power analysis thing because at that phase, it's not a, it's mm. not a meaningless thing anymore, yeah. right? We've, we've, we're very seri serious about our, our, our test. I, and, so and maybe that's it. Maybe that's the solution, right? So if we save them for the phase three kind of thing, 
mm. uh, where we really want to hammer something down. Mm. And yeah, a lot of people are in phase two and we force them to do a power analysis and they're like, what? What? I mean, this doesn't feel right. You're forcing me into something that I'm not doing. Mm. Yeah, that could, I think this is nice. I mean, mm. I don't know if the podcast is about resolving disagreements, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we might be very close here. Yeah. But I think Josh, like this goes back to like, because Josh said, I think his study was exploratory. So in that we would mm. agree that it just doesn't make sense to force him to do a, you know, post hoc power analysis if it was mm. an exploratory study to begin with. I, I completely yeah. agree. I mean, and the comment of the reviewer is definitely a sign of, hey, I, I, I followed some tweets and mm. somebody yelled power analysis, power <laughs> analysis, power analysis. So I'm going to say do this, right? Mm. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, uh, I think it is worth thinking, why didn't I do two studies with mm. 1,200 people? Would that have taught me more mm. about what I want to learn? Mm. You know, and maybe not. I don't mm. know. That's a very complex question in itself. But I think we should also ask those questions. Mm. And, and the same with exploration. You also want to think, so, okay, I am exploring, but what is my goal here? And then what should my sample size be to achieve this goal? Do I just want to see if people sort of get it? I don't know, you know, like, do I just want to play around? But you still need always to tie the sample size to a question. And the question can be very varied, but you need, you need some relation there. I, I think. So I, um, yeah, I think I agree. So that, uh, I also wanted to ask you a question. So I was reading, um, mm -hmm. the SPSP, mm -hmm. uh, study group or what do they call them? Um, they wrote this paper about power. Have you read that one? I think I know about it. Yeah. 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 I think Roger, Gina Sarola mm -hmm. was maybe the head author on it. And I think they might've made a mistake in it. And I wanted to ask you about this. So they say mm. in it, um, where is it? They basically say the lower the power, the more we should mm. reduce our willingness to accept P values close to alpha equals 0.05 as evidence. Mm. And as far as I can tell, that's wrong. Uh, if power is about 60%. So if the question, if you bring me a P value, that's 0.04. Hmm. Um, and my question is, are we in the alternative hypothesis world or the null hypothesis world? Hmm. Um, it's actually a higher likelihood of being in the alternative hypothesis world with slightly lower power, like not super lower power. It's it, mm. an interesting non-linear relationship, but it, it like exactly. yeah. at about yeah. 60%. I, I like how you're jumping into like a super technical thing about <laughs> relative likelihoods of a p-value of 0 0.04 under the null versus the hypothesis. Yes. I'm sure yes. we've, we've lost nobody here. Yes. We've lost no, no, none of your listeners. Yeah. Well, okay, I, but it, sure. But yeah, it sounds a bit too simplistic, right? Sometimes, sometimes you can trust it or not. The other issue is also, I mean, a significant finding is a significant finding. If you didn't fool yourself and if you maintained error control, there is, you know, under the null hypothesis, only a 5% probability of this happening in the long run. So, I mean, that's always true. Your type 1 error rate is always a type 1 error rate. You can evaluate the data after you found this p-value. Mm. You can evaluate it in a likelihood way or in a Bayesian way. That's all fine. Yeah. But um, if we... That power is, you know, power is calculated beforehand, right? We mm. design the study and we choose the sample size beforehand to, to achieve something. So in the long run, if we do a lot of studies, the p-value is just the p-value, right? It's yeah, just that you're yeah. getting a lot of null results and you don't learn efficiently if you have a, a bad relationship between power and uh, type yeah, of Yeah, well, I mean, it's complicated. So you have Lindley's paradox, which says that, you know, if you have super yeah. high power, 
then uh, p value of 0.04 is it's you're more likely to be in the null world yeah. than the alternative yeah, I just want to say like anybody who doesn't follow this this is like week one of my MOOC so I mean Paul's <laughs> just expecting that every listener has done week week one of my MOOC which yeah. you know it's okay, free so, so there's no excuse but bringing yeah, it back okay. to a less nerdy point <laughs> yeah if the SPSP working group is making mistakes in mm. their paper yeah. about power let's mm. tell you something about like the state of knowledge in our field I mean, about about power like and it's less not your think, fault i'm not completely sure so i think i mean I, I know roger has been working on power for a very long time and mm. uh, has done a good job as an editor so i'm not completely sure. like this mm. detail i don't know um I, i'm it, it probably maybe is fine maybe not completely i mean maybe the peer review process will solve it i mean people miss miss tiny things it's fine mm. um uh, i do think that like it's it's the same as with the empirical stuff, right? We also don't discuss these kind of things with large groups of people. And this yeah. is a working group, so it's already large-ish, yeah. I guess. But maybe, you know, you're always missing some voices and some perspectives on things. Yeah. Um, wait, and, wait, and in my experience... Smirty and me should have been involved <laughs> no, but, in this collaboration. <laughs> but in my, in my experience, like, there's a couple of perspectives in statistics, and every perspective has its own sort of way of doing certain things. So it's difficult to write a paper like this is how we do it, but you'd have to write a paper like, well, if this is your philosophy, then this is how you do it. But if this is your philosophy and you are interested in likelihoods, then then the p-value means, you know, maybe it's not convincing anymore. Mm -hmm. So so these kind of things are always a bit tricky to do. And then of course, what they want to do is give practical advice. So mm -hmm. you can't say, well, first choose, first use this uh, decision uh, graph to pick your philosophy of science. Yeah, you have mm -hmm. it. Okay, good. Now, now pick your philosophy on statistics. Oh, great. Yeah, we still not lost you. Now you can do a power analysis. I mean, that's not how it works, regrettably. So, yeah. But again, the problem would probably be solved if uh, in a large collaboration, we just have two people uh, or three who come up with sample size and say, no, no, you also need to take this into account. And we cover all our bases because, mm -hmm. you know, there are, there are minor differences, but in practice, we can just work things out so that everybody's happy. Mm. Uh, we, we prevent Lindley's paradox and we have a tight error control, for example. I mean, fine, we can do mm. that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Um, you, <laughs> Science, life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You, you made a good point, I thought, um, in Josh Grubbs' thread where you were saying like, um, that's a really good sample size. I hope you didn't use alpha as 0.05. Um, mm -hmm. and the, the point, right. Is that like, for example, yeah, you know, if you set out for a 0.05, your false one type one error rate is always 5%. Um, mm -hmm. but if you have very high power, your type two error rate could be 1% or something like that. And, um, yeah. you lose very few, uh, true positives by setting alpha at yeah. 0.01. Yeah. So you could yeah. easily make your type one error rate 1% and have very few false positives without missing yeah. out on many uh, yeah. true positives. And uh, he didn't well, respond, think... which I guess means he used 0 0.05, but it, like- I think so. As he I said, so. like- Which I is mean, also fine. P, his Sometimes P was wonder... like 0 0.00005. So it's like, who cares if his alpha was 0.05, you know? No, exactly. He could have done this, uh, but also not after the fact, of course. And I, I always wonder a little bit, like how much of this is now getting, you know, like I have this blog, which is like the 20% statistician. So I don't want to get into the, you know, and that solves 80% of it's the great. problems. Principle. And, and sometimes I wonder, are we now talking about balancing error rates? Like, you know, you should even have lowered your alpha. Is this in the last 20%? Should we not worry about it? But then on the other end, like he, 
you know, this was clearly an expensive, I don't know what he did, but mm -hmm. I mean, probably an expensive study with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it takes like, if, if I would be in a group and think along, you know, it takes me 20 seconds to raise this. I mean, it mm -hmm. takes me the time in a Twitter thread to raise mm -hmm. this. So that's like a minute, you know? So, yeah. So maybe it is worth thinking about how we do these things. And like that would have made the study a bit more informative, I think. So why not? Right. So, so it's not all trivial, but yeah, it is all complex and there's a lot of stuff. There's just too much to do by yourself. That's the issue. And I'm, I mean, I'm not even an expert on power analysis. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it fits my philosophy. So I've spent quite some time thinking about it, but you know, there will be other people in the world that, you know, will run circles around me and what they know about this stuff. So, yeah. Can I Not ask us, a question right. about, no. <laughs> can I ask a, a question about, about power Sassoy? analysis in your next study? Yeah, because I think it's an interesting <laughs> yeah, yeah. idea. Like, I do think there, like, yeah. it's very, it could be very useful. And the analogy mm. you draw is like, okay, we should think about all, like with the just uh, noticeable differences, right? Um, for example, yeah. For yeah. example, yeah. Like an analogy, yeah. like what might be the smallest thing that we're interested in? How do we quantify that? Like if yeah. there was a change or not. And yeah. I mean, with like perceptual information, that definitely makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But I am not sure how this would work with when you're talking about people's psychological experiences. Like, are people even good at assessing changes in their own psychology? Like, do we have any empirical research that says that they are good at it? And especially like yeah. I, if I'm working with children, right? Um, if I'm doing educational interventions, then it, I'm not sure if that's feasible in those cases. Yeah. So, no, I, I mean, I think it's a very good question how feasible it is. Yeah. So there is some work on it. And, uh, um, and I think it's interesting. So there are studies in clinical science a lot in cl clinical psychology, mm -hmm. where, you know, if you're going to go to a therapist, for example, because you're depressed, the idea is sort of that afterwards, if nothing else, you feel better. Right? right. Because I don't know. I mean, what else are we going to do? But that's an important thing that that uh, uh, therapists care about. Like after we go gone through a treatment, do you feel better? Mm -hmm. And yeah, the only way that we have to measure this is just ask you, like, how yeah. do you feel now? And then after therapy, we ask, how do you feel now? And then we also ask, do you feel better? You know, so that's as simple as it is. So this procedure that I just described is called like an anchor based method. And the last question, do you feel better? We use it to compute. So let's say we had a mood skill before or some life satisfaction skill. Mm -hmm. We measured it before and after. There's a small difference. You, you, you know, you rate your life as more satisfactory, you're happier. And then you also say, well, I feel this is, this is like the smallest improvement that I would say, yeah, yeah, this is an improvement. That's I feel a little bit better. Yeah. You know, or you say, no, I feel massively better. And we should expect that this sort of has a relation with the measurements that we took before and after. So this is an approach that people use. I think it's interesting as an approach for these kind of questions. Like, does this matter for you personally, right? Like if you, if you buy a more expensive type of food, whatever it is, whatever, or I don't know, with every food that, you know, any, anytime you cook dinner, you buy something, dessert, you buy dessert. Does it make you happier? You know, after you had dinner, you're like, man, this really, this feels good. Like, this is nice having a nice dessert after my meal. It has a cost. So how much? You know, and you should say, if I have this extra thing, how much, you know, happier does this make me if I have dessert after dinner every day? And then if you say, well, I don't notice an increase in happiness, you know, there's nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, then don't do it. Right. So, so I feel that there are many cases where, yeah, we care about what you personally feel. Is this worth it for you? Um, so if we can measure that, then we can measure these more psychological things, or at least this is what they do, right? So these anchor-based methods yeah. are used. I, I think some psychometricians should like, you know, uh, jump on this stuff because it's used. As it is, it is used. You know, somewhere it makes sense. 
But I also think there's a lot of room to say, yeah, but do you actually know what you think? And did you remember how you felt before? And is your rating after a treatment for depression? Can we even use the same measurement tool? Like, is it, you know, yeah. is there measurement invariance and those kind of things? So, um, yeah, so these are all t tough questions, but this is an approach that is used. I'm not saying that it's done, but but you can try it, you know, you can try it. And then based on these questions, you can say, well, apparently if people say, no, I feel exactly the same, that's associated with effect sizes of this on the pre-post difference on this uh, life satisfaction scale. Mm -hmm. But if they say they feel a little bit better, we see that this is like half a skill point increase or 0.3 skill point mm -hmm. increase or something. And then we can start to use that as a benchmark for therapy. Like if your therapy doesn't make people happier than a 0.3 skill, like points on a skill, then apparently people are never going to say, oh, I feel better after therapy. So that's a way that people have used it, which is not... Uh, yeah, perception related, but it's like subjective rating. Yeah, and and I think it's interesting. I'm not saying that this is the end all, but uh, I definitely think it's an interesting approach. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I just think in practice it might be tricky to do it, especially in some situations. But Paul, you're saying something? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm probably not going to say anything you haven't already thought of. But like when I was reading this anchor-based stuff, um, mm -hmm. uh, and so now we're talking about smallest effect size of interest and how to identify what that is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had similar thoughts to Smitty, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, like weight loss interventions that make a person lose one pound. Right. So if somebody's yeah. 301 pounds, they become 300 pounds. We ask them, do you feel lighter? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, they're probably not going to notice, but you know, if we keep doing this intervention, uh, it's probably it could save their life. Right. Or the other example I thought was like, if, a, if a bank, like yeah. put a hidden hidden fee from your bank account and they took ten dollars exactly. you might never notice mm. it mm. but you probably you probably care about that no. it probably makes <laughs> a difference so yeah no, i mean that's a good a good a good question so i mean yeah we did think about this and actually um there was um, a, a a meeting of the society for the improvement of psychological science and farid anvari who is uh, uh, the person doing most of this anchor-based work mm -hmm. um he had a meeting there like a workshop and people discussed this topic and one of the things that they mentioned is we need to know which things stack mm -hmm. in our life mm -hmm. and which things don't stack and psychologists often say well it's just a tiny effect but you experience it every day mm -hmm. so then after 10 years you know but I don't know, I experience a change in temperature of 0 0.2 degrees every day, whatever, and, and I'd never notice it. It never registers and it doesn't add up over time. Mm. So we need to know which of these things add up and which don't add up, you know? Like if I, if I open my Twitter account and it's 0.01% more negative mm. and I do this every day, do I end up becoming depressed or do I just don't notice it at all and just, you know, there's no effect on me? Mm. Uh, so we don't know. You know, and the bank is a good example of where, well, money adds. We know, you know, money doesn't disappear. It's not completely true, well, by the way. That's I mean, in the a Netherlands, cool example. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, well, in the Netherlands, I mean, I, I saw this uh, TikTok video this morning, which is much more happy uh, than uh, Twitter, I can tell. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I don't know if we, we'll keep having it. but And there was this guy. So in the Netherlands, we, we uh, got rid of our cents. We don't have a cent anymore. Uh, so everything is rounded to five cents because the only coin we have left is five cents. Yeah. And there's this guy and he said, I'm going to the supermarket. I'm buying something. It's I buy two uh, cartons of milk and it's two dollars and four cents. And I say, oh, sorry, I only have two dollars. I can't buy it. And then he says, put one back. OK, so there's like there's one. It costs one dollar and two cents. 
you know? So he's like, okay, I'll buy this one for $1, right? Because it's rounded down. And he's like, oh, by the way, I'll have the other one as well. So sometimes money doesn't even stack, right? So this is a rare example where money doesn't keep increasing. But otherwise, of course, for a bank, 0.00001 cent, yeah, it stacks, you know, they'll just keep adding it. And in the end, they'll get rich of those kind of things. Um, so we need to know for psychology, like what what things stack and which things don't stack, because it's a super important thing mm-hmm. in how important are things, right? I mean, stacking, yeah, is incredibly important. I mean, because if Twitter makes you 0.1% mm-hmm. less happy, mm-hmm. that doesn't stack for you. It might yeah. stack for the population of the Netherlands, I right? Mean, like if we if you make everybody in a population a thousandth so, so, less happy... You, yeah, you might so, so maybe an extra three like murders. As a, as a major cop out of how feasible is it to determine the smallest effect size of interest all the time, right? I mean, so there are a couple of approaches. We didn't even think about cost benefit analysis, right? That's another way. Like, if your inv- intervention costs money yeah. and you want it to, you know, that, that might be, it's also difficult, but economics has some experience with it. But uh, as a sort of cop out solution, like, aren't these interesting questions that we might want to think about? Like, what do we care about? Can we measure if you notice something and find it meaningful? Um, do we know if things stack over time so they get worse or not? I mean, these are important questions. So just addressing this issue, I think, uh, is is probably an interesting uh, sort of research line for psychologists. Like, yeah, yeah, no, these just, are interesting I, things to know. 100% with you here. Like, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how implicit bias research works in the real mm. world mm. how it affects anybody and yeah. how yeah. like and we're not even yeah. close we're not even close to that but yeah. you yeah. like the demand that i figure out before i run my next study mm. all that stuff so i can come up with a sesoy i'm just like oh, i can't move yeah look i was <laughs> no, powered for no. these effects i was wasn't powered for these effects here's what i found yeah please publish my <laughs> and give me a job. Yeah, that last part. Yeah, that last. Yeah, just publish it. Then. No, no. So I mean, uh, I mean, work sh- work should be published for many, many reasons. And you're right. Like the benefit of this curve of power is also that you're always well powered for some effects. So then just take a look at what you're well powered for, and most of the cases uh, that will be a worthwhile contribution in itself. Right? Okay. So if it was this b- big, you would have noticed it. Can it be can it be smaller? Yeah, it can be. And if you care about it, you can run a bigger study. But we didn't know that we could reject effects of a certain size, right? Let's say you find a null effect and your mm-hmm. confidence interval excludes, I don't know, it excludes some stuff, right? Mm. It, there's always stuff that falls outside of your confidence interval. Yeah, so you, can, yeah. you could reject that. You're like, well, we've learned that it's not this big. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know if whatever you study is even smaller... Well, you collect the, another thousand people, you know. Well, this is this leads into another question I wanted to ask you, uh, and I asked you via um, via Twitter, but you said you wanted to keep your um, keep your ammunition dry, or keep your powder <laughs> dry. I'm, so, I'm getting old, so, so, yeah, you know, so I give you, away all my. You've talked my a lot already before, about yeah. we need we need falsifiable science. We need science to be mm, falsifiable, yeah. and this is the idea of the uh, two one-sided tests. Um, mm. The equivalence tests where, mm. you know, instead of rejecting a null of zero, you set the null at the smallest effect size of interest on either mm. side. And if you can reject it either way, you say, well, we yeah. reject that there's an effect that size. Okay. Yeah. What's the difference? <laughs> so like I do like the equivalence test and I yeah. spend all this time and I study like Daniel Larkins's blog and I learn how to do an equivalence test. And I like, again, I, I mean, I just stole this from, this is not my work I do study. Done, done in medicine again. Just I mean, it's claim it, man. Me. Nobody knows. 40 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so I do all this work and I say, okay, I've rejected that there's an effect of D equals 
point yes. one or d equals point two. What's the difference if I hadn't done that and I computed an effect size and I just told you the confidence intervals? Because that at the that, at the same time, because of what you're saying, it's pretty close. With false, practically speaking, yeah, yeah. By falsifying, practically speaking, it's pretty close. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. But you're raising a point. You're raising the point. What's the value of testing something? And that is what we reached before, right? Before we also had this point, like, well, if you don't want to test, I'm perfectly happy with people not testing so much. I think people are testing way too much. It doesn't make sense. Like, again, in my world, or not my world, but I mean, at least in my approach to statistics, the test is this phase three th trial, right? This thing like, okay, we're gonna run, we're gonna roll this out. We're gonna really do something with this. It could also be in psychology, a smaller kind of thing. Like I'm gonna give up on this research line. You know, but when you make a real decision about something or you say, I'm not using this thing, I'm using the other thing. But that's what a test is for, to help you make a decision without fooling yourself too often. Now, how often do you make a decision? Maybe you feel like, no, I'm just sending my students out. They're collecting data. And regardless of what happens, I'm going to send them out next week again. Well, then you're not making any decisions based on data. So it's fine. Maybe don't test so much, right? Mm. So I think that is... Um, this distinction and the same with do i want to falsify something well yeah we want to falsify stuff sometimes because we don't want people to continue say uh precognition exists right we want to say no no we've tried everything you came up with it really is not there you are not getting funding anymore it's done it's over well you know i guess we want to stop some things sometimes you know we want to learn we want to falsify things like no you're wrong and so that is what a test does formally right that's what it formally does and also it requires you to beforehand think what do i care about and then design a study that will reach your goal which is answer a question now if you just you can always compute a confidence interval sure well, that's also great nice you didn't do this formal testing thing you know that's the only difference and and maybe if you listen to this you're like then maybe i don't care so much about this testing thing right so i made um, so I have the first MOOC where I explain a little bit of this stuff and also equivalence testing. I have a second MOOC, which is called Improving Your Statistical Questions. And in the first module, there's a whole lecture that goes, do you really want to test a hypothesis? And the answer should very often be no, no. But you've mm. been brought up to think you always want to test. I don't think so, right? Mm. So when you feel like, why don't I just report a confidence interval? Why do I want to test something? then you probably don't want to test something. Perfectly fine. Good luck getting uh, your seven studies into JPSP with that question, <laughs> but that's another issue, no? That's not my, my, my fault. Yeah. I, I would... You haven't tested something. So, like, uh, if I report a confidence interval, hmm. I, I guess I may be wrong, but I see that as you sort of have tested something. Because uh, by falsify, all you mean is, like, we have some data that shows that it's very unlikely the, mm. that the effect is this, but a confidence mm. interval can really, it gives you the same information. I guess I don't quite understand that, that distinction. I mean, the confidence interval will always reject values that fall out of it. But if you repeat the study 70 times, what would happen, right? So you don't know your error rate. That's sort of the issue. You don't know how severely you have tested something because you don't have an error rate. If you just say mm -hmm. after the fact, you look at your data and you're gonna reject everything that falls out of it, you'll be wrong very often because confidence intervals jump around. So you've rejected values you shouldn't have rejected, for example. So, so it's not so easy as just coming up with it after the fact. That is why people wrote so many books about hypothesis testing. I mean, so it has a role, but it's overused. It does a thing very well. It allows you to make decisions without fooling yourself, which 
it does much more, uh, you know, much better than if you just after the fact say, hey, I have this one confidence interval. Let me just reject everything that falls outside of it. That's not the procedure, the methodological procedure we go through. But, you know, I don't know. Otherwise, it's pretty close. I mean, you know, I don't want to <laughs> right. be a purist about these things. But there is there is a formal thing uh, about it. Uh, yeah. And for the formal thing, you need to hammer some stuff down. But But I totally get the feeling where you're like, hmm, yeah, this all feels like just so nitpicky and I don't know if I want to do this thing and that is fine but the problem is we don't have good names for these other things mm. we have this beautiful formal method hypothesis testing you can train first year students about it and it all makes sense and it's structured mm. and then we have the other stuff like what you just described like no I send my students out there I look at it so how do we name this and when and, and most importantly because this research should be done how do you get JPSP to accept that Mm. That is the challenge, right? Because I'm, I'm with you 100% that this work needs to be done. You probably don't want to test anything. And now we're forcing people to put a power analysis in front of it and a p-value after it. You know, and, and, and if the editor at JPSP has read my papers, they have to specify as smallest effects of interest in a while. And I mean, mm -hmm. we're not making things better, right? By forcing this stuff on top of people. So, mm. yeah, but the trick is those journals need to say, yeah, this study that you just did, that's interesting. We'll take it, you know. And and now we treat the the test as the the yeah the rule whether they should take your stuff or not. And we need a replacement for it. But there's no nice formal mechanism where any first year student can say, oh yeah yeah you did you did what you needed to do to get published. Good for you. No. So we need to work a lot more on this part as well if we want to, yeah, make people do it a bit more. Yeah. Okay. I mean, in general, like I agree. I like the the extent to which we misuse the basic statistical tools that we're given in undergrad and graduate statistics training is it is holding us back as a field and and i i like your project like i like the idea that you are just sort of finding ways where we can do things better and i think your your general position and what you're saying on everything hurts is just you you don't want people just to use heuristics you want them to actually understand what they're doing and the reasoning behind things and yeah. this yeah, this yeah. is where I feel we are with power is that like people still like just say yeah. say things and don't really yeah. understand. So, yeah, maybe maybe what's useful as a final thing to say about this. So is the development we went through in our department. So our department requires a uh, sample size justification. Uh, and it has done this for, uh, so the ethical review board gets a proposal and it requires a sample size justification. And we've done this for five years or so. And, and in the beginning, we're like, yeah, yeah. So that, I guess, means a power analysis. Like five years ago, I didn't know anything about anything. I still don't know a lot about anything. But, you know, you learn, especially in contact with colleagues who have to really implement stuff. So what we've learned over time is like, yeah, very often this is just a nonsense thing. Mm -hmm. So that's why we said, well, okay, you don't need to do a power analysis. What are the other options? Well, maybe you just want to measure something accurately. Great. So I have one colleague who hates hypothesis testing and everything he submits to the ERB is like, well, we have a certain level of precision. I'm happy with it. That's all I'm doing here. And what we care about is, are you answering a question you're actually interested in? So fine. That's perfect. And now we move to the situation where some people said, yeah, this is all I can collect, like feasibility limitations. Fine. And most recently, we moved to the situation where you said, well, what's your goal here? This is a master thesis student, like related to what we talked about earlier about the PhD project. Mm -hmm. So they need to get skills. Okay, yeah. good. So what kind of skills do we think they learn from running participant 9 to 89? Nothing. 
They've learned everything about data collection in the first eight data points they collected. So collect 10, call it a day. The goal here is teach them skills, data collection skills. And then they write up a paper with 10 people in there. Yeah, of course, the statistics are not informative, but that's very educational. Writing a paper with 10 people and having to explain why your statistics are not informative might be more educational than writing up these p-values and treating like they are informative. So, so this is the latest development. And five years from now, you know, we've figured out other stuff that we were doing wrong or forcing on people. But the main thing is a subset of the sample size justifications is power, and it's getting smaller over time, not bigger. Mm. Right? So that might might be a positive note. Like, okay, so I think this is possible in our department. I don't know how my colleagues get stuff published nowadays, but <laughs> afterwards pretending like they had an a priori power, <laughs> lying about it. Like, no, but uh, yeah. So th this is, I think, a sensible way to do things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure how it works in the publishing well, that, scheme, but uh, yeah. I thought that was a interesting paper that um, was shared earlier in the week showing that when there's a requirement for a power analysis sample sizes didn't become higher yeah. um, and yeah. you can interpret that in multiple ways but like I mean to me it sort of just suggests that people just plug in numbers until they tell them what they were already going to collect is fine I, I agree anyway. I agree and also in our department we really noticed that this is not the case so I really thought that papers showed that if you implement something but you don't implement it well mm -hmm. yeah then you don't see change but our department has been really discussing in meetings staff meetings we've been discussing okay our labs are full so what do we do? Because we all require bigger studies. If they do a good power analysis, the studies are bigger. So what do we do? Right? So we said, well, you can collect data online. So we explored, you know, we created those possibilities. We use that more. And we have said, well, we will have a subset of studies where we used to collect 80 people, but now it's educational. You're going to do eight. That's it. You're not going to be in the lab for uh, two weeks. Uh, clogging up the system. We need it for those big studies where people do have something that they really want to test. Mm. Um, so I, I thought that study was more an indication that the ERP should do a better job in distinguishing the stuff where you do need it and then force people to do a good power analysis. We, we very often send uh, uh, proposals back. We also help our colleagues, of course, to you know fix their power analysis. They don't have to learn everything by themselves, especially with simulation. But uh, we often send things back and say, no, this is not a good sample size justification. And very often we say, and you don't want to do a power analysis. You know, uh, sorry, um, this is not a good power analysis and you probably don't want to do one. And if they do want to do one, then we help them to do it well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps. So it, it is possible, but you just get a subset of things where, where we still do them. Yeah. That, that's my prediction, if you would do them well. And then it should lead to higher sample sizes, of course. All right. Well, I will let you go, but I have one final question. Why yeah. red? Like, you're just <laughs> red everywhere. Isn't Twitter, it a lovely uh, photo? Facebook, on your blog, like you just read, just the flag of Larkin's land. Yeah. Like, what? Why? <laughs> because, what, I mean, the, the story is very simple because when I uh, created my Twitter account in 2010 and I needed to pick an avatar, you know, I'm that old that when I was young, we, we were still almost all anonymous online. We didn't use profile pictures. I mean, uh -huh. we didn't have digital cameras or stuff. But I had one picture on my, I mean, 2010. Yeah, maybe we had a digital camera, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but uh, so I, I had two pictures on my computer from a Simon effect task that I did. One was a blue square and the other was a red square. And I thought the red square is going to be much more noticeable than the blue square. So I picked the red one. That's it. But uh, it's good branding, it. I think. It's, uh, you know, totally. It's, uh, yeah. It has it's worked. Fantastic. It worked Isn't the there years. like a yeah. I like emoji now as well with the red square? 
Wait, uh, emoji, red square emoji. Well, I, yeah. Oh, like yeah, yeah, no, I think there is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't have anything to do with oh, it. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it exists. Yeah, it's true. No, but good branding. Yeah, think about uh, think about branding. I, I have to say your logo is also awesome. The more oh, cool. my God. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Paul made that. Nice. We, we took us a yeah. long time to... <laughs> also, credits man. for the opening track and the closing track. Uh, Paul, <laughs> yeah. You, know, you need to plug your band a bit more. But yeah, Smriti, well, great. Smriti rejected like logo after logo <laughs> after logo it was a nightmare it has worked it has pushed the quality to it yeah like, i just if i'm I, gonna put my name on something it needs to yeah. reflect a certain kind of quality the, good yeah. but it was see, wasteful it was wasteful of my improvement <laughs> my is time. possible in the end <laughs> you cost the world valuable social science research <laughs> uh, well. i thought we agreed your research is useful <laughs> so <laughs> Well, okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is so great. great. Very nice. That was Very a great nice chat. To you, yeah. 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 Thanks. Um, we'll have you back on maybe sometime, and uh, we'll try to keep uh, try to keep just pushing out quality content for you just every week <laughs> as our only great. fan. Look forward to it. Thanks. Yeah. All thanks right. so much, Daniel.